Can you explain what a budget is? Like uh, what a budget is? Yeah, like, like, like a, really? Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias. Uh, joining me today, we have uh, Jim Tangersley, politics editor of Vox.com, who I, I believe was with us uh, once before talking about, about tax reform. And also uh, Tara Gulsham, who is uh, one of our ace uh, Capitol Hill reporters, uh, a, a new new to the podcasting world. Have, have you podcasted before? I have never podcasted before. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. It's big. It's amazing. Where's the champagne? It's a little early for champagne, Jim. I think, you know. When you're, you're supposed editor, to be man. managing right. this. Yeah. Come on. It's a um, Friday on a holiday. Hey, if Jim says champagne. So, you know, we really wanted to talk about Mika Brzezinski tweets, but I looked at the title of the show. It's called The Weeds. We're supposed to talk about boring policy. So we're going to we're going to set the tweets and the cable news feeds aside for the day. Um because I want to talk about while most of the sort of politics policy attention has been focused on the healthcare bill wrangling in the Senate. Another kind of subplot is developing in the House as they've been trying to work on a budget resolution without that much success. And there's a there's a lot of different policy threads that that sort of connect to that, but but just step back I think it's important to understand budget is like a word in the English language, but it's also it's a term of art in Congress. And so, Jim, like, what's what's a budget for? Well, budget is basically a statement of priorities. It's not exactly a statement of what we're going to do with your money, but it's a statement of what we would like to do with your money if we could make ourselves follow through on it. What it does is it sets out spending priorities, levels, down to line items, and then you can pass Congress. And then that's this blueprint that then Congress can fit its appropriations bills, which are the actual bills that spend money, to. So it's basically, you you write a budget, and the budget tells each committee you should appropriate such and such amount of money, and then there's a, there's a second phase when, when they follow through with that. Yeah, it's basically just the top-line numbers that appropriators can go off of when they're, when they're negotiating their spending bills. And, and so we don't actually have a budget every year, right? No, you don't actually have to pass a budget resolution, and last year— the Republicans failed to pass a budget resolution because it's a really hard thing to do because you have all these different competing factions of the party that want different things and they can't always agree on how to put it together in one budget resolution. And so now they do have this push that they they do have to pass a budget resolution because they want to do tax reform. Right. So, so this is the important part, right? So passing a budget is hard because you have to sort of get everybody to agree. And passing a budget is also not necessary, right? To fund the government, you need appropriations bills. Um, so the budget doesn't keep the government open. And it's not necessary to have a budget to pass the appropriations bills. And it's not sufficient to pass the budget either, right? So sometimes Congress will just not do it, even when there's unified partisan control. Uh, But so what does passing a budget let you do that that makes them want to do it? So basically, the Republicans have decided that they don't want to work with Democrats on any of their big agenda items. So what they're doing is going through this process called budget reconciliation, which is what their health bill is being pushed through. But to do budget reconciliation, you need a budget resolution because you write in these kind of reconciliation instructions in each of the resolutions and each 
budget resolution can have one budget reconciliation bill. So they used 2017 for healthcare, and now they want to use 2018 for tax reform. But before they do that, they have to pass an actual budget. Right. So so this yeah. is where you, you get down to the issue, right? If you want to pass a tax bill through the Senate with 50 votes, which is what they want to do, you need a reconciliation bill. And to have a reconciliation bill, you need a budget. And the budget has to have reconciliation instructions attached to it. Yes. And so that's why they want to do a budget. The budget is basically a cheat code to get around the 60-volt threshold for very difficult pieces of legislation because they're unwilling to get rid of the filibuster in the Senate. That, right. is, that is the reason why this is important. But your budget has to be comprehensive. You're, you're not allowed to just say, hey, our budget's going to have tax cuts. You have to write out these sort of top-line instructions for everybody. Yeah, you basically have to say, we're going to save this much money from whatever we do through budget reconciliation pretty specifically in there. And that's where kind of this big political fight has been born. Okay, so now that brings us to where we are in the House. They are trying to come up with some set of numbers that will cut spending, that will let them cut taxes, and that will still qualify for budget reconciliation because it doesn't increase the deficit outside the 10-year window. So they got to come up with some some tough cuts. So what are they working on? So the problem here is that you have a very strong contingent of the Republican conference that really wants to hike up spending for defense. And because of that, you have this kind of struggle within the party where they know that defense is going to go up. They also have these competing factions of the party that are fiscal hawks. They want to make sure that the government is kind of tapered down. And then you have the conservatives in the party that are are trying to make sure that you can get enough savings to offset what will eventually be tax cuts and these increases in defense spending. So that's kind of like all the competing groups that are trying to figure out a way to find some kind of So they're, they're trying to spend less overall, but trying to spend more on the military. Yes. Like a lot more, actually. Right. Right. So that means they have to spend a lot less someplace else. And they've also taken Social Security off the table. Yeah. And they've taken Medicare off the table. So we have a bunch of problems that are coming to bear on the Republicans right now. Many of them of their own philosophy, some of them of their own political rhetoric over the last eight years. For the last eight years, Republicans have been telling us that deficits, high deficits and big national debt are holding back the economy. They've also been telling us that too much government spending has been holding back the economy. And they've also been telling us that taxes are too high but roughly sort of in that order. And so now they want to pass a big tax cut bill, but that would blow up the deficit if you didn't get a bunch of spending cut to offset it. The problem is, A, like Tara said, they want to hike spending on the military because they've also been telling us that like we don't have a big enough Navy and other things. But B, that the spending programs that they would cut, that are available to be cut, that are outside of Social Security and Medicare, are very popular. Like many of them are very popular. Like research, NIH grants. So you have a very small amount of areas where Republicans can sort of agree that they might be able to cut government spending by a large amount, large enough to free up room for these tax cuts. And that is where we are right now with this budget. So, so how, much, how much are they talking about for military spending? Right now, the last agreement they came to was $621.5 billion. That's a lot. Yeah, it's more than what Trump proposed in his budget. He proposed 603. And the... 
kind of armed services people wanted 640. So this was kind of the in-between. But this is a huge problem for them because it it busts the caps for defense. And in a really uh, weedsy problem that they have to pass, if they want to do this on the baseline of their budget, they have to agree to bust the caps. And to do that in the Senate, you need Democratic support. Well, here we should. Well, let's let's put a pin in that because okay. that's that's its whole other <laughs> yeah, whole procedural other. sort of fiasco. Um, so they're talking about spending. I, I mean, the the U.S. government is already it's like hovers just below fifty percent of like total world military spending, and they're saying they they want to go sort of way up on on that number, and then in exchange, at least the sort of conservative members of the caucus who are driving the process, to an extent, are talking about basically gigantic cut in spending on poor people, right? Yeah, more or less. So, like, what's in that? Like, what's... So, basically, the Freedom Caucus in the House sees it as is reverse engineering. So, if you cut enough or have enough savings, as they call it, in the mandatory spending side, cutting programs like Medicaid, cutting things like TANF, which is assistance for poor people, for it's like cash assistance or childcare, um, cutting food stamps, then you can kind of make up some of the difference is what they're proposing. I mean, we've talked a lot on on, on the show with, with the other hosts about, about the healthcare bills, which put, you know, very big cuts in spending on poor people's medical care sort of in. And then this Freedom Caucus agenda is like fill out the rest of that. You know, there's a, a Dead Kennedy song, Kill the Poor. And we're saying, having taken their medical care away through the health care bill, now it's time to go after, like, food mostly, right? I mean, that's, that's like, the, the biggest block of spending there because TANF is already so, so small, right? right? Yes, well, the, there's been a big increase in food stamp spending and SNAP spending over the last decade plus because there were as a change under the Bush administration in eligibility rules. So a big part of what they want to do here is slap on a bunch of new eligibility restrictions like work requirements, right, Tara? Right. That they believe would, you know, weed out the people who really need the assistance and the people who are not working sufficiently hard enough to qualify for assistance. So what that ends up necessarily adds up to is there's going to be a lot of poor people who don't get assistance in the future who would have gotten it otherwise. So after this whole campaign about how we need to do something for, like, the poor, unemployed steel worker in central Pennsylvania, the assistance he's going to get is no more food stamps. The assistance he's going to get, Matt, is a new job that pays fantastically because of their tax cuts. That is the assistance that they are offering. This, right, but this so, I, I mean, I, well, let's be, so, like, how much cuts are, are we talking about in, in these kind of programs? So, I mean, what the conservatives are asking for is very different than what's politically feasible. But so, like, Jim Jordan, for example, from the Freedom Caucus, he has a proposal that would have welfare reforms to SNAP and TANF. The Heritage Foundation estimates would save about $200 billion. Over 10 years. Over 10 years, which is huge. But politically, they're asking for more around maybe 70 billion. That's a number that's floated. It's not, they haven't, they won't outwardly come out with a direct number that they want assurances on in the budget resolution. Mm -hmm. But then there's, there's pushback to this? Yeah, there is pushback. So basically, the Republicans as a whole are more than happy to write in savings and they're more than happy to do welfare reform. It just, if you write it into the budget resolution that specifically and that high, it really ties their hands. And there's pushback on wanting to make that so restrictive. And of course, different committees, like for example, conservatives are really pushing back against the agriculture committee because that's what controls or has purview over 
food stamps for saying that they don't want to go that high because they have other interests and other priorities, like a farm bill, for example, that they want to they want to be a little bit careful about. Wait, wait, what, what, what does that mean? They don't want to have their savings number be so high so that they can so right. they're so, restricted. So, so the actual Republicans who sit on the agriculture committee want to have more money to play with. Right, exactly. And the, the way the way you would get drastic food stamp cuts through a budget bill would be to instruct the agriculture committee, which has jurisdiction over SNAP, to do big cuts. Right. And then you've sort of like tossed this hot potato over to the ag committee, which I guess members of Congress feel a natural push and pull between, okay, I'm a conservative member. I want to see spending go down, but if you happen to have jurisdiction over a particular kind of spending, you would like it to be somebody else's spending that gets cut right. rather than the spending that that you get to do because that's your power, that's your authority in life. And and normally members, you know, want some kind of as you were saying, the armed services committee people are the biggest proponents of defense spending and the agriculture committee people are the biggest skeptics of, of food stamp cuts because that's like that's that's your fun that you get to have out there as a as a backbench member of Congress is like doling out your committee's appropriations. Yeah, especially now that you don't get earmarks. Right. So let's go back to the spending caps, though, because this is important. Because the whole point of this is to come up with a budget that you can do on a party line vote. But there's budget caps that were put into law years ago. 2012, the sequester. Right. So how did that work? It was a great time in Washington, D.C., Matt. There's, there was grand desire to take the progress of the recovery and slow it down by reducing fiscal policy. I'm being sort of tongue-in-cheek here, but the Obama administration made a pivot to deficit reduction in concert with the Republicans who had, in 2010, won these big gains, in part by promising to cut spending because spending was out of control. So um, neither side could come up with a, an actual plan to cut spending, so they just agreed to put in place like a default plan that would cap spending on discretionary spending and, and military spending on the domestic side, but they didn't think they were going to do it. They thought, oh, we'll hash out a deal. They did not hash out a deal. And so these caps went into place, and now everybody is chafing at them. The Democrats would prefer to lift the caps on the things that are like research and development. The Republicans want to lift the caps on defense. The Democrats have resisted lifting the caps on just defense and not non-defense. And so now we are we are towards Wait, that. I think this is crazier than you're giving you credit for. Because back then, the the proposal from the Obama administration was that they wanted to do some tax increases on affluent households, and they wanted to do some cuts to Medicare and Social Security. Yeah. Right? That was their long-term deficit reduction. And the sequester was a backstop, right? If you couldn't reach an agreement on a plan like that, that would come in. So conservatives rejected that offer as as insufficient because at the time, they wanted to do no tax increases and all entitlement cuts, basically. Because they thought they were going to win the 2012 election and be able to do that. Right. But they lost the 2012 election. So consequently, taxes on high-income families went up, which is what Obama was asking for them as a concession. And now, under Donald Trump, they are no longer proposing the entitlement cuts that Obama used to be willing to give them in exchange for tax hikes that he got anyway. Right. Obama made an offer that had two prongs. Republicans rejected it. And then liberals wound up winning on both sides of it. That's true. But it also capped spending. The, the default yes. thing that came so, into place right. but so, was but, bad for everyone. Right. But so then this is the legacy, 
was these cuts in discretionary spending on both sides, defense and non-defense. And the issue here is that with a budget reconciliation, you can appropriate with 50 votes. But the Budget Control Act that established these caps is like regular legislation that is not burdable. So to appropriate defense at the level, right, Tara? So basically to do an appropriations bill that is at the level of defense spending that this budget calls for, you would need 60 votes in the Senate, which undermines the whole purpose. Yes. So basically what happens is that they either have to work with Democrats to agree to raise the defense cap, and they know that if they work with Democrats and Democrats are going to have some demands on that, they're not going to just be like, okay, yeah, raise the defense fact. Uh, caps, they're going to be like, no, you also have to raise how much you're going to spend on non-defense discretionary funding. Or what's being floated by leadership is there's a, a loop around here. And you could just put all of the extra money that would go above the defense cap, which is at uh, $549 billion, in something called OCO, which is a contingency. Basically, if it's like a war fund. Uh-huh. But like, <laughs> there's a lot of pushback here because... I mean, there's an argument that if you want to if you want to hike up defense that much, you should probably put it in the the budget right. <laughs> uh, instead of just kind of this this fund on top of the budget that is not. And it would be like a hundred billion dollars in OCO if they try to do this loop around. So OCO is the overseas contingency operation. Yes, and it would just be in the budget resolution, and it's it's outside of what would be considered in in the defense budget cap. Right. And so now the the military doesn't like this idea because like any organization, they like to have their money. I mean, they like more money rather than less, but they also like to have their money in sort of predictable ways that they can count on. And they'd like, the Overseas Contingency Operations Fund, because it takes into account the fact that, you know, when there's a war, you can't know, like, exactly how many bombs you're going to explode or, you know, how many of your stuff is, is going to get blown up, you know, what, what you're going to need to spend. So they, they want some flexibility there. But you can't do long-term planning for, like Jim was saying, right? Like, if the Navy wants to have more ships, right? It takes a long time to build those aircraft carriers. They need, like, real appropriations to do that. And if they try to stuff all their long-term capital spending into a budget that's sort of fake small because they're really supposed to be tapping the overseas contingency operations funds for it, it's hard to do that. It's hard to accomplish the goals of the higher defense spending that way. So, John McCain and the kind of like like hardcore hawks had been had been pushing against this idea, um, which also say violates the spirit of the laws. And if you go this route, you ultimately end up back in the situation where, I mean, these these cuts they're making on defense would be just paper cuts because you would ultimately need a bipartisan agreement, right? So to an extent, they're arguing about nothing. Yeah. I mean, so like this is where basically what what the conservatives are saying. So the funny thing is that the conservatives are the ones being like, hey, leadership, you should go talk to the Democrats on the Senate side uh-huh. and, and start figuring something out because we don't want to just do this here and then it just gets destroyed on the Senate and then it'll just take longer and all that stuff. But I mean, the way that they see it is that, okay, we'll be okay with these higher top line numbers on non-defense discretionary that will undoubtedly come from working with Democrats for plussing up defense, as long as you give us really big mandatory savings cuts. So 
to kind of balance it out. But the mandatory savings cuts again is that that so that's food stamps. That's yeah. that's, yeah. that's like food food for poor children. And remember that the, among other yeah. safety net programs. Yeah. But yes, the way that this all ends up playing out is that in the fall there'll be another battle over an approves bill, like we always have. Like it'll come down to the last minute, like we always have. There will probably be a debt limit battle tossed into it as well. And so, to the extent that Republicans feel like this budget and other initiatives give them leverage over Democrats, that's part of that. Like they are tired of losing to Democrats uh, in their view in these appropriations last minute negotiations because they don't want to be blamed for a government shutdown. But uh, in this particular case, I think that what they're hoping for is that they can force the Democrats to swallow some of these mandatory spending cuts along the way to whatever deal they get. Right. Well, but this is where the mandatory discretionary distinction is yeah. important, right? Because their health care bill, right, it's a, it's a reconciliation bill. And, you know, it has a lot of parts to it. But, like, broadly speaking, there's a big tax cut and you pay for it with a big Medicaid cut. And that happens— outside the appropriations process. And so similarly, if they can get these instructions for big cuts in food stamps, TANF, a couple other entitlement programs for low-income people, then you could move toward a reconciliation bill that on a partisan basis cuts taxes and pays for it with food stamp cuts. Yeah, theoretically. Fun. <laughs> Speaking of tax cuts. Yes. What's, what's up with the tax reform, Jim? They are motivated, Matt, to reform the tax code and cut cut some tax rates. Here's where it is. Right now it's stalled behind health care, but there's a lot more activity behind it than the health care bill. Like Republicans philosophically have a much better idea of what they want to do with the tax code than than they did with health care. But there are huge hurdles remaining, starting with if they don't pass the health care bill, that changes their calculation. There is a plan sitting in the House of Representatives right now that Kevin Brady, the chairman of the Ways and Means Committee, and Paul Ryan have put forth. It is essentially dead uh, because of a key provision in the middle that a bunch of conservative groups, including the Kochs, absolutely hate, which is the border adjustment provision. We should come back to that in a second. But they're going to solve that. They're going to figure out what's going on with that. And then they're going to move forward. And, and here's what they're going to do, broadly speaking. They are going to lower tax rates quite substantially on corporations. They are probably going to lower them quite substantially on small businesses and large businesses that incorporate in the way that small businesses do, which is called pass-through taxation. They are going to cut tax rates to some degree on high-earning individuals, um, capital gains, whatever, and also top marginal income tax rates, those tax hikes Barack Obama got through, and then they, they may do something for the middle class. Uh, that's unclear. But this is the plan that's going to take shape. And the question, of course, is whether it can come to legislative fruition because there's a lot in the way of it. Right. So corporate tax cuts, that's pretty simple, pretty simple stuff. We have a corporate income tax rate. It's 35%. Uh, that's very high. Uh, nobody really pays that because you got a lot of loopholes. But, you know, businesses would, would like a rate cut. Uh, Republicans are going to cut the rate. Fair enough. Um What's the deal with the with the small businesses, quote unquote? Yeah. Well, okay. So right now, if you own Matt Iglesias LLC, yes, um, then you are a pass through entity, and you do not pay the corporate tax rate on your profits. You instead pay your individual income tax rate on your profits. Or if there are other owners, you distribute those profits as income to the owners and you each pay your marginal tax. And that's because profits. basically if, if it was a business, if the business was like just me or just me and two guys, to pay a 35% tax on our profits and then to pay ourselves as business owners and pay, you know, whatever it is, 20-something percent on top of that, yeah. I would be paying personally 
as a business owner, a much higher tax rate than I would be paying if I just, like, worked for a company yeah, and got absolutely. paid a lot of money. So that's, like, that's the rationale. So you can opt as the owner of a... I guess we should we should be clear because they like to call it a small business, but it's not it's not the size of the business that's small. It's that you have a small number of people owning the business. Right. Yes. In fact, um, Donald Trump, for example, owns hundreds of these pass through entities that are all small parts of the Trump organization, and so it's it's, it's not just small businesses. Right. It gets, I mean, it's sold as small businesses, and there are a lot of small businesses. Right. But the tax cut would overwhelmingly, in dollar terms, benefit the large businesses that are incorporated this way, including the Trump Organization, including some financial firms on Wall Street. Like, there are there are big windfalls to be had for the rich in changing this rate. But again, right now, if you're a very wealthy owner of a, you know, a high-income owner, uh, owner of one of these LLCs, you pay 39.5% for your income tax rate. What Trump would do is cut it to 15. That's, and so that's... That's a lot. That's a huge incentive if you're a rich person to find a way to make yourself an L, a, a pass-through entity as opposed to draw a salary from somebody. Right. So right now, the idea is you don't want owners of closely held businesses to be paying double tax. Yes. So you can take it as income tax. But the top income tax rate is higher than the corporate income tax rate. So there's yeah. like, so, so far you can see, okay, here's like an argument. Rich lawyer is paying, because he has a, a partnership, a higher tax rate than a corporation would. So, like, maybe that's bad. Maybe you should get it at a lower rate. But they're proposing a huge cut in the corporate income tax rate and a huge cut in the rate for the LLCs, so much so that it's like everybody could pay less taxes if they could reconfigure themselves to be an LLC. Right, exactly. If you're LeBron James, you save a lot of money not by being an employee of the Cleveland Cavaliers, but by being a contractor for the Cleveland Cavaliers who is contracted out for a service. Now, I don't think that's possible under the NBA rules, but that's the sort of thing that could happen. But I, I could be I could be Weeds LLC. Right, exactly. But So the reason why this matters for the budget is that all of these moves would reduce tax revenues by a substantial amount of money, even if you account for the expected additional economic growth they might generate, most estimates are that the Trump plan would cost trillions of dollars, and that doesn't work under the reconciliation rules for the budget by itself. Right, Tar? Right. So that's why they have to make cuts. <laughs> um, okay, so they're trying to, to get this through, and are House members ready to go with this tax plan, as, as far as you can tell, or are they really just trying to clear the decks? Well, there is the one part where Jim mentioned that the conservatives are not happy with, which is the bat tax, which just seems dead because there are enough conservatives to say no. But that would arguably bring revenue. So Yeah, that was a trillion dollars of revenue to offset the lost revenues. So I, in an ideal world of tax reform, you cut some rates that cost you money, but you get rid of some distortionary loopholes, those giveaways to certain companies. Or you raise other taxes, and that it offsets, and then you have a revenue-neutral tax reform, whether that's dynamically or statically. In this case, the BAT is what is doing a lot of the work to offset the lost revenue. I'm, the I'm, general, there's a general idea, though, that they're not going to do that, which leaves this huge hole that they're going to have to figure out a way. Yeah, it just seems fill. like House leadership is super into the BAT and not a lot of I'm, I'm really, I'm really sad that BAT has won out in the acronym wars. Uh, you know, when this started, we called it a, a DBCFT, Destination-Based Cash Flow Tax, uh, that frankly I think is a lot more 
it's a lot more accurate. Uh, and catchier, to be fair. Yeah, it's it's DBCFT, friendlier. Um, yeah. And you could tell the DBCFT proponents, I think, they lost once it became known as bad. I think we should we should try to explain what this what this is, um, even though it appears it's not going to happen, because Paul Ryan is really into this idea. Yeah, yeah it's, it's, it's the idea that essentially you don't pay taxes on things you export, but you do pay taxes on materials you import. But it's like a sales tax, because like the border adjustment <coughs> is part of the tax. I am frustrated by that acronym, because it, it misses like the tax part. Right. Right. Just in favor of the, like any, all different kinds of taxes, right? So, like, you could have a carbon tax. That's an idea people talk about. Um, so, companies should pay tax on their carbon emissions. If you did that, another thing you might want to do is apply a border adjustment to it so that the carbon content of imports is taxed and the carbon content of exports is not taxed. Yes. And then you would call that still a carbon tax. With a border adjustment, yes. not like a border tax with it with a carbon element, and so the essence of this DBCFT plan was to have a tax on everything. Yes, and the, and <laughs> and I think that's actually the most important part of it. If you want to understand why there's opposition to this, is there would be a giant increase in the taxes people have to pay to buy things but in those, general. But, the, but if the things are made in America, they're not actually taxed. Well, if they're made in America and sold abroad, they're not taxed. Right. Essentially, what it ends up coming down to is a tax on imported things that you buy or sure. that the people you buy from buy. and that, But that's like all things. Well, you buy some things that, that have no content whatsoever that came from somewhere else. Do I? I think you do. I, mean, I hope you do. <laughs> No, but I mean, like, in a modern supply, right? So, like, for example, pretty much everything I buy at some point in its life cycle is transported in a vehicle that burns gasoline. Yes. And that oil is imported from abroad. Not always. A lot of oil, a lot of oil that you use now is not imported from abroad. Okay, but there is oil that's imported. Yeah. Your friends, you went to party with the Koch brothers. I did. I, I hung out in Colorado Springs last weekend. And they have some interest in the oil refining business, as I understand it. They do. And as a consequence, they're not excited about this tax. I mean, like there were basically three villains ever present at this conference. One was government regulation, which is no surprise. Another was Elizabeth Warren, which also is not a surprise. And the third was the border adjustment. And it may have been the greatest the greatest villain of all. And it's because they have really cast this aggressively as a price hike on consumers, a backdoor to a, a VAT tax. Like they they just see this in exactly the way you described it as a, a tax on things everybody buys. Now, there is a wonky, complicated, and somewhat in dispute monetary policy argument that that effect ends up getting wiped out because the dollar appreciates and you're able to buy more stuff. And that over time, the effects of this tax basically go away. However, no one at that conference bought that and they made it very, 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 very clear that for all the other problems that tax reform has, this is the first one that they have to to do, and that, like, job one every day is getting Paul Ryan to pull it from the bill. It's really amazing that they're just, they're obsessed with the bat, because it's, I mean, it's basically dead. Like, it doesn't have enough votes. Well, this is what's weird about it. So nobody nobody likes this idea, right? So the White House is Except against it. Except for Paul Ryan. It. Right. But like the, Thank you, Brady. The, the, yeah, the, White House, the White House is against it from, like, day one, when the, this first floated, what, back in January? Yeah. yeah. 
And so no, like, no, no, no. I mean, they actually introduced it last summer, but yeah, it, it sort of came to prominence. Okay, but like all of these senators right away were like, this is a terrible idea. Orrin Hatch gave this big speech where he was like, the media always wants to say Republicans are fighting with each other, but we agree about everything. We agree about everything. Okay, we disagree about this border tax, but we agree about everything. <laughs> so like, it's dead. You can't do a bill partisan bill that is not supported by the president, the Senate Finance Committee, all of your caucus, your major donors. Like, there's no way. But Paul Ryan won't give up. Yeah. Because there's not, they don't have a good answer with, for what to replace it. And then this comes back to the budget fight. They're spending a lot of time right now trying to enact Medicaid cuts in the health care bill. But that takes away what would have been their largest single source of potential. Like, you could have said— we are going to cut Medicaid spending in order to finance a big rate cut. And we don't need any kind of loophole closures or new tax to offset because we're going to do it with Medi- Medicaid cuts. But they're using all their Medicaid cuts for health care. So, I think they're going to do more Medicaid cuts. I mean, but not, <laughs> but, but not to the level they need to offset right, it. So then, so then you are down to some things. You're, like, you are okay, down but to Jim, some- there's always more ways to take social services from poor people. I think that's yeah. That's and it's basically that's why this has become the target because they just they really need some way to offset all these expensive other things they want to do. But there are also other. I mean, they also you will see them embracing. I think much more rosy growth projections from the tax cuts than the Joint Committee on Taxation is likely to project. Um, You will see them embracing some other gimmicks like a 20-year budget window for reconciliation, which allows them more time for this to balance. In the end of the day, you are going to see them try every possible way to make the most aggressive cuts that they can to the rates because there is a true and long-held, deep philosophical belief in the party that if you do that, you are going to unleash like Reagan-esque growth, like 6% growth, um, possibly over the short term, and then like 4% sustained that will like revitalize America and solve all of our problems, including Poor people. No, there was not actually growth that fast when Reagan was president. Reagan had, he had 7% growth one year. Uh, why? Be, well, okay. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. Trump, Trump will, Trump Fine. Will so there's an interesting tension here, right? Because there's a certain journalistic attachment to accounting procedures, which have a sort of a colorful neutrality to them. And so what you're talking about, Jim, like a gimmicks-heavy tax cut, I always feel like the press tends to come down hard against people who, like, want to go all gimmicks. But the other side, the more, like, mathematically rigorous approach uh, is is what, what, what TARS conservatives have been going for, which is that, like, instead of paying for the tax cut with gimmicks, you pay for it by, by taking food, shelter, and medical care from poor people. And I happen to feel that it would be better to use budget gimmicks. No, I actually think they want to do both. They want to do both the gimmicks— <laughs> And, and and no, I'm serious. Like that was the at the there was a big tax reform panel at the Coke conference, and several Freedom Caucus members were on it, and they were very open to the gimmicks, but also very in favor of the spending cuts. So, yeah, they they can have it all, Matt. Gimmicks? Yeah, I mean, yeah, Jim's right. I mean, they've talked about both. So what? So what? What kind of gimmicks? How do we gimmick this? I mean, so you can just say whatever you want on growth. You know, if you're talking, right? But don't your numbers need to score at the Congressional Budget Office to actually pass? What you have to do is sort of the most important rule of reconciliation is you can't increase the deficit after 10 years. Outside of a 10-year window, all the changes you make 
can't increase the deficit more than 10 years. This is why George W. Bush had to sunset his tax increases at the end of a decade so that um, they, or sorry, his tax cuts at the end of a decade so that they would not appear to be reducing revenues and increasing deficits in the long run. But what many Republicans are proposing here is a 20-year budget. Like, let's change that window to 20 years or 30 years. And then a 30-year sunsetted tax cut is basically a permanent tax cut for business purposes. That's not, you can plan around that. But it's essentially an argument that you are never going to achieve, like, long-term budget neutrality, but you get away with it in the rules of reconciliation because you've changed that window. Oh, that's a pretty good gimmick. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's not unclever. No. So you so you make it permanent, but you just make it sort of last forever. Yeah, exactly. It's like one of those ninety nine year Forest Service cabin leases that you find in the in the West. Sometimes people get like a ninety nine year lease on a cabin from the Forest Service, which basically what? means your family owns the cabin forever. But then after ninety nine years, you have to give it back to the Forest. Yeah, Service. I used to live in a condo that was on a, a ninety year lease from the city, and I, I always we were on like year eighty seven or no, like year three. So it all seemed fine. But I but I always used to wonder like, what's going to happen? Like, is the building going to evaporate when, when this ends up? Um, <laughs> so he just comes and takes it. I don't know. I, anyway, I moved because I I didn't want to find <laughs> you couldn't out. Couldn't handle the uncertainty eighty seven years from now. Um, what what sort of happens there? So are they gonna like? get this done? Aren't they running out of time? Like, Congress is leaving town now for a week, then they're back for a couple weeks, then they're supposed to be gone on their... Congress takes a a summer vacation to go to 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 fundraising camp. Yeah, well, conservatives really... uh, The Freedom Caucus voted that they want Congress to stay through August, but they... I feel like that's just a... A thing to go back to your voters to say. But anyways, but yeah, the, the calendar is is really kind of coming up on them. Um, they were planning, the House was planning to mark up their budget resolution before the July 4th recess. Obviously, they are now on July 4th recess, and that has not happened because they cannot reconcile their differences. Uh, so when they come back, then they're going to have to deal with the debt ceiling. They're going to have to start spending negotiations. They're going to maybe see a Senate health bill come back to them. Like, it doesn't look great in terms of getting things done. But, I mean, Paul Ryan said by the end of the year. Well, at the co-conference, they put up this, like, ominous calendar that basically was, we think we have till May of next year to get anything done, and then it's, like, over, and everybody's just campaigning all the time. So, realistically, that means a sprint from September to December to pass what will be a more aggressive and potentially more difficult tax reform bill than the one that it took Ronald Reagan and Congress like several years to negotiate in 1986. Which is tricky under the best circumstances, difficult under the circumstances where the leader of your party and of uh, you know the President of the United States is has not articulated his actual priorities beyond a single typed page of platitudes about the tax plan. And particularly difficult because... Everything depends on what happens with healthcare. If they pass the healthcare bill, that and it cuts a bunch of taxes, that actually makes tax reform easier because they are it resets what's called the baseline uh, of revenues downward. So you're not you're not having to fill in as many revenues. But if they can't pass it and they're also trying to then do those tax cuts in that tax reform bill, it makes it harder than the On the other hand, it gives them Medicaid cuts they can play with. It, on the other hand, it gives them Medicaid cuts they can play with. That's for sure. Lurking in here as a landmine is that at some point in October, the Treasury is going to be out of cash, and they're going to need a, a, a debt ceiling increase. And 
a push was afoot like a month ago to try to get them to do the debt ceiling increase during this sort of three-week July window before the August recess, is now looking to me like that is not going to happen. At least no groundwork has been laid for actually doing that. But traditionally, you haven't been able to get a party-line Republican vote for a debt ceiling increase. So you were going to need to get some Democratic votes. And I think it's going to be challenging to get Democrats to cooperate with new borrowing authority if they know that the next piece of legislation to come down the pike is going to be a, a gigantic tax cut paid for with weird accounting gimmicks. And cuts in social services for poor people. So. Yeah, it's going to be It's going to be interesting. <laughs> I, I guess an interesting question will be is like, can any progress get made on any of these fronts during the abbreviated working period of July? Because they're basically piling up a series of different things, right? Agreement on a health care bill, agreement on a budget, agreement on the debt ceiling, agreement on a tax bill, and then agreement on appropriations bills that all has to get done by the end of September. Well, I mean, it doesn't all have to get done by the end of September. Well, some of it does. Like, healthcare doesn't have to get done by the end of September. But if healthcare doesn't get done by August, it's probably not going to get done. That's, I mean, yes. Because also, healthcare is being proceeded on under the old budget reconciliation. And so to keep that active and possible, you have to know. That's not necessarily true. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. This is like a, so the, I mean. This, this is an old wives tale yeah. in Congress. I can't, I mean, I can't stress this enough of how unprecedented it is that they have two reconciliation bills, possibly like hitting up against each other. But the thing is, like, because it's unprecedented, there are no strict parliamentarian rules about this. They don't really know. I mean, you could technically have the healthcare reconciliation bill open and have them pass a budget resolution, start working on the tax reform reconciliation bill, and have them do it at the same time. And the understanding for them is that they the Senate just can't vote on the House's tax reform reconciliation yeah, bill that's what until I was they saying. pass. Right. But yeah, but you can... Right, that's what I was saying. Once tax reform happens, healthcare doesn't. And to move seriously to tax reform, it has to be able to happen. Yeah, but, but again, that's the idea that these lawmakers are are going off of. But I'm, ultimately, the parliamentarian can rule either sure. way. All I'm saying is they have a lot of different priorities sort of piling up behind them. And they have like two big windows in which to pass things. We're now in the July 4th recess, right? Initially, Mitch McConnell's plan was to hold the health care vote before the July 4th recess. And the reason for that was to avoid this situation where you have an unrealistic amount of things that you need to do in July. But, like, basically, they have to clear the decks of, like, some of these items of business in July, because you can't, I, I mean, there, there's the procedural question of, about tax and, and health care, but there's also to know what your tax reform bill should say, you have to know what the tax code you're starting with looks like. Right. Yeah. And since the health care bill also has tax provisions, I mean, to an extent, you literally can't do it because they don't. They don't know what tax code they're reforming exactly until they know. I mean, they think they know because they're assuming the health care bill will pass, but it might not pass, in which case you would have to go back to the, the drawing board on, on some of these items. Yeah. And I, I think the other thing to stress here is that, back to your point about the pileup, the approach bills are going to have to pass to, to you know, whether it's approach bills or a continuing resolution or whatever, like 
If they want to keep the government open, they've got a deadline in the fall on that. Same is true of the debt ceiling. Those are the two must-dos. But, you know, everything else are the things that they campaigned on and promised voters, and the Republican base in particular is getting anxious about them. That's why there's this big push from the supply-side conservatives to cancel the August recess and make them work on tax reform. And I think you're going to just see more of that. Yeah, I mean, basically, they had this really beautiful vision of how everything was going to move so smoothly, and they would just finish one budget resolution and easily pass another and then do tax reform. And we've just seen that unravel epically. And basically, all the political conflicts that you're seeing with the health care bill is just is repeating itself with the budget resolution, will likely repeat itself with the tax reform bill. So, yeah, I mean, the calendar's running up, especially if they keep saying, like, yes, we're going to finish this this year. I mean, I think Paul Ryan came out and said that last week, a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, sort of mission impossible, race against the clock to take as many social assistance programs away from poor people as you can. The funny thing, too, is that I think oftentimes they try and run up against the clock because it will pressure their conference to vote the way the leadership wants to. But we've seen that this doesn't necessarily work with this conference, like forcing conservatives in a what, what did they call it? They said it was like black and white vote. You can either do it or not. I mean, just it didn't work with them. So and it's not working again with a budget resolution. They tried the same trick. So yeah. Don, yeah. Just, Donald Trump gave the Freedom Caucus a cookie, and now they want a glass of milk to go with it. And they're yeah. just going to keep asking or more for things. Cookies. Yep, or more cookies. Who doesn't want more cookies? I like cookies. All right. Well, with that, uh, I'm going to be on my, my, my own uh, July 4th recess uh, next week. But but Ezra is going to be um, stocking the show with, with some kind of guests. Uh, we will we will be ready for you. Thanks to uh, to Jim and, and Tara for, for coming on and, and breaking this all down for us. Uh, thanks to Peter Leonard for producing. Um, check out the Weeds Facebook group for uh, more dialogue, discussion, uh, debate, uh, all, all that kind of good stuff. Um, Thanks to you for for listening. We will see you next week.